1: We are the people that are immersive. We are the ones that want to see, okay, where does our Black history and diasporic history intersect with the story of the location where we are? We look for the local vendors that come from the neighborhoods that can get us access to the townships and the parties and the local restaurants and the mom and pop shops that people aren't looking for in a guidebook. That's how we get down when we do our Nomadness trips. And so for us, it was about always seeking out and also representing the underrepresented. And that has not changed at all with us. We've just gotten better about it and doubled down on our mission.
0: This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Avita Turquoise Robinson. She is a location-independent entrepreneur, author, TED Speaker, TV, video producer, and the founder of Nomadness Travel Tribe, an online social community primarily for travelers of color. Founded in 2011, Nomadness was the first of its kind targeting black and brown millennials in the newly coined black travel movement, and today has over 24,000 international members. Nomadness also hosts the biannual Audacity Fest, an immersive experience that celebrates and creates a safe space for discussions centered around traveling the world as a person of color. Since COVID-19, the festival has pivoted to a virtual format with Audacity Digi Festivals now attracting over 500 virtual attendees from 20 plus countries. Evita has garnered partnerships with top brands and destinations around the world and has also partnered with the Emmy-nominated Issa Rae from HBO's Insecure to co-produce the Nomadness Project web series on YouTube. Evita has been featured in The New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Ebony Essence, as well as on CNN and MSNBC. She is a board member of Condé Nast Travelers' Women Who Travel, initiative and was invited to the White House under the Obama administration for their meeting of the world's creative changemakers. She was named one of Entrepreneur Magazine's 50 Most Daring Entrepreneurs, and Evita was named one of National Geographic's 21 Most Visionary Women Throughout Travel History. Evita, welcome to the show.
1: Thank
0: you. So good to have you here. You are doing big and exciting things, and I'm super excited to dive into all of them. But first, let's just set a little bit of context in terms of where we are this evening, and the fact that you and I agreed to have this discussion over our respective bottles of wine because we couldn't be in person. So I am actually recording this from Asheville, North Carolina, from my quarantine location in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I have just opened a bottle of red wine. This is a red blend from the Piedmont region of Italy. And where are you tonight? And what are you drinking?
1: I am home, also in my quarantine quarters in Newark, New Jersey, and I have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc, but specifically a Sincere, which is one of my favorite whites.
0: That is a really, really, really good wine region in France. I've actually not been to Sincere. I've been to a lot of the other wine regions. I've been to Bordeaux and Burgundy, but I have not yet been to Sincere. I know you spent a bunch of time in France, though. Have you traveled through some of the wine regions there as well?
1: I haven't. I didn't get the opportunity to do that because when I was out there, it was literally for the New York Film Academy. I was shooting films. I was in an intense course that was taking up about half of that summer that I was there. So I did not get outside of Amsterdam. I wasn't able to venture off. I was in a really immersive kind of creative space.
0: Yeah, I feel that the first couple of times that I went to Paris, I didn't get outside of it either. I hadn't seen any of the rest of France. And then like two years ago, some friends of mine and I were like, let's just go for a month through the French wine country and just literally see like these other parts of France. And they were so amazing. But that's the great thing about travel. You can go back to places and see very different parts of the same country and have very, very different experiences. Right. That's awesome. Well, I would love to start with just kind of going back and learning a little bit about your story, your backstory. Where did you grow up? And as you were coming up, how did your interest and passion for travel develop?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, beautiful kind of like Hudson Valley area of New York State. And to be honest with you, travel was not a part of that. You know, as far as the most I had done, up until you know, growing up was going to Jamaica. My stepfather is Jamaican. And so we would do kind of, you know, family international trips every year or so when I was younger. But even so, there were gaps where I hadn't been in Jamaica in almost a decade of my own accord, just being in school and life. So, you know, it was not this big thing. I'm also not following the steps of anybody in my family. I'm very much a black sheep when it comes to this type of lifestyle. I still think that to this day, a lot of my family doesn't understand exactly what the hell it is that I do anyway. And I'm just like, it's absolutely (laughs) fine. Just like rock with it. But yeah, I definitely took to it more as an adult when I was only concerned for myself and, you know, really like the last semester of college was when I took speaking of France, you know, my first trip out to Paris and I was like, okay, there's something else here. And it really just opened up my eyes to how the rest of the world was working. And how diverse it could be and also how different it is from what it was like being here in the States and, you know, being primarily in New York. But um, yeah, so it's like, I had a very, I mean, very just kind of humble backgrounds and beginnings really starting in the Poughkeepsie area of, of New York state.
0: And then what were those sort of breakthrough travel moments? What was it that made you decide to go to France and then from there, what was your sort of travel trajectory like?
1: What made me go to France was I knew I, my background is in television and video production. That was my degree in college. And I was torn between if I wanted to stay in TV production or if I wanted to get into film because I had an affinity for both. And I wanted to get some type of, you know, film certification that would secure me. So, you know, being responsible and getting ready to graduate university, and I wanted to be able to go and, you know, qualify for whatever type of job I wanted to apply for, but I knew it was going to be in the visual arts. And so... When I was looking at the New York Film Academy, being a New Yorker, you know, it's so easy and viable to take these courses right there. At that point in time, they had their main office right in Union Square in New York City. But I didn't want to do it in New York. I wanted to go somewhere else and actually use this as an opportunity to travel. Because I remember being in high school, I went to a very affluent, very white school growing up. And one of the things that would pop up sometimes just kind of like hanging out with my friends is a number of them had, their families had the disposable income and made it work for them to be able to go and travel abroad. I was not in that particular position within my family. And so, you know, being the active person, I couldn't just be a part of the clubs in high school. I had to run them and be on the e-board and all this other shit. And so when it came to study abroad and their travels, there were times where I would just literally be there quietly in awe of some of the places that they had been to. Ironically enough, Paris was the main conversation that I remember um, about a trip that they had taken over one summer. And I made a silent promise to myself at my friend Joe's house at that time in high school. I said, one day I'm going to be able to contribute to these conversations. And that was the silent promise that I had made to myself really about turning my life at some, some capacity of my life into international travel. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't have a plan. I didn't go into it knowing any of this stuff was going to happen, but that was enough to push me and to secure me in this space of really wanting to see what the world had to offer. So as I graduated, you know, from school, graduated from college, I, I, was again faced with, okay, what are you going to do after school? You know, everybody talks and I was the commencement speaker of my graduating class. And it was just like, you know, everybody's like, what are you going to do with your life? And now the real world and all this other stuff. And I had this funny quote in my commencement speech where I was just like, yeah, everybody's been asking you what you're going to do now that you're entering the real world as if everything you've done thus far has been fake. And because it used to agitate me because you put so much work in. And another thing I said in my speech was, you know, I've been in school since kindergarten. I think I deserve a break, you know, and I was one of the only people out of my graduating class that was traveling right after school. And so I made a conscious decision to go the alternative route and to figure out what life was going to lead for me on the other end. I didn't speak another language. I had never really traveled. I hadn't traveled internationally outside of visiting family in Jamaica as a child, but I wanted to see what was going to happen next. And so I ended up linking with the New York film Academy, signing up for a digital filmmaking workshop and, had narrowed it down to Tokyo, Florence, and Paris as the places that I wanted to take the program and my best friend from high school happened to still be living in Paris during her study and work abroad program and was like, "Look, we can share a flat. It's going to be super small. We're going to have we're going to have to sleep in the same bed every day, but the time that you're here also coincides with the end of her program, so I ended up just shacking up with one of my best friends from high school during this time, right at the end of college in Paris. And so Paris for me was so transformative because that's where everything started. You know, that was, I was doing my art. So I was in a creative Haven, which I love so much. And, you know, soaking in everything that is Paris, everything that was Western Europe. I remember the day I landed within 24 hours i had packed a overnight bag and spent a weekend in amsterdam and just took the train to amsterdam by myself and so i just remember being fascinated at how close the countries were you know the the way that europe is set up it's like you know their countries especially in western europe are like the equivalent of our states as far as how easy they're to get they are to get to And I tried to take as much advantage of it as I could. But outside of Amsterdam, I couldn't really bop around too much because of the intensity of the filmmaking school that I was in at La Femise and our hours. We were shooting multiple films and editing every single weekend. So it was pretty hardcore. But it was one of the most amazing and transformative experiences of my life.
0: That's amazing. When you went there at that age, the first time you went to Paris, were you aware of sort of the history of all these amazing international expats, James Baldwin and other people that had gone to Paris and just sort of the creativity that these amazing people produced in Paris? Were you sort of aware of that history and, and as you were stepping into that as a creative?
1: Not at all, actually, and it was much later in life that I started to really connect the dots in that way, and then I was able to kind of deep dive a little bit more into it when I did my TED talk um, in 2017. That was when I was really just like, you know, as you said, James Baldwin, Josephine Baker, so many black expats, so many, you know, even war heroes that you know travel was a part of, you know, their their military work, and so there's so many ways and, you know, iterations of what a historical Black traveler has looked like, right? And the purpose for for getting out. And, you know, to your point, artistry is a huge one. And definitely Paris, for whatever reason, was kind of like on everybody's pit stop. You know, everybody had some type of time in Paris. And so I guess I kind of went through my own <laughs> my own love affair with the city as well. But at that time, I was completely oblivious to the impact that this particular city had had on so many other influential people in my community.
0: But it did have that impact on you. And then after Paris, what was your next move? How did that sort of springboard your travel and life trajectory?
1: Yeah. So I remember our final film that we had to show in the theater at La Femise literally they waited and showed mine last. And I was like nervous the whole night. I had some of my friends there and you know, it was nerve wracking because you have to sit through everybody's films and you know, people are getting antsy. But literally I had the head of, he was our post-production supervisor um, who ended up being a really good friend of mine who unfortunately passed away a couple years ago with cancer, Thomas. He was like, I purposely saved yours until the end because I thought you had the best film out of everybody in the entire program. And then I remember when we got done that same night, Pablo, who was our overall, he was just the director of the entire program and a film director. He has this really funny film called Toro Molino 63 that is just hilarious. And just an amazing professor, I guess you would call him and an older but student of the craft. And I remember him pulling me to the side and being like, Avita, listen, he's like, I don't know what your plan is for like this thing called life. But that proverbial it factor that they talk about, you've got it. And he's like, and I don't want to, you know, sway you and push you anyway, but I want you to pay attention and hear me when I tell you that you have a gift and you've got to utilize it, whatever that looks like for you. And on top of being on cloud nine, seeing your film, you know, in a movie theater (laughs) amongst your peers, to get the feedback that I did and from the people who were actually working and facilitating the program with hundreds of us from all around the world, there were acting programs, you know, actual film, 16 millimeter film programs that were happening at the same time. It wasn't just our digital filmmaking course, you know, to have those types of statements be told to me in private really blew my mind. And I remember the last day being depressed actually. And it was because I woke up ironically, My second to last day and my friend's last day of her program in her apartment had coincided. So she left 24 hours before I did to head back to the United States. And the last morning I woke up in her apartment alone. I woke up alone. I woke up with it empty. And I also woke up with nowhere to go for the first time for the whole period I was there in Paris. And all these people that had grown to be my family and, you know, my creative peers and friends you know, now all of a sudden we didn't have to go to La Femise, we didn't have classes, we weren't shooting films. And it was funny because we all kind of navigated back to the area of the school anyway. And I think we were all feeling the same thing. It's like being on a high and being dropped. And I felt this only one other time. I felt it in Paris during La Femise and I felt it at the conclusion of my TED residency back in 2017. When you're around such greatness every day and you're around such creativity every day, And then all of a sudden that is yanked from you, especially as a solopreneur, even if you have a team, if you don't have an office and that team isn't around you, it can be a lonely life. (laughs) And you have to really, really keep yourself in a mind frame to kind of keep going and do the work and reach out to people. I think that's why community is so important to me just in general. But I remember us ending up kind of together, doing some things around Paris. And then I'm a big journaler. I have my life since 10th grade of high school on paper. I have about 36 journals. And so I've been writing for a really long time. And I remember sitting down with my journal, sitting in front of the Eiffel Tower on the Grand Lawn and just saying to myself, like, I don't know what this means, you know? I don't know what this means. I'm newly graduated. I'm scared as fuck. I just graduated school. I don't know exactly what's next, but I know what I'm gonna try. And to be in Paris, looking at the Eiffel Tower with this backdrop, having these thoughts, it was just, it was emotionally overwhelming, but it set the stage for something that I did not know was getting ready to change my entire life. And so coming back to New York, I stayed in Poughkeepsie for about a couple months before my mother and I rang each other's necks. And then I ended up moving to the Bronx, which ended up being where I called home for about 10 years. But in the midst of the decade that I spent in the Bronx and working freelancing in and out of reality TV and things of that nature in the city, I also ended up living in Thailand. I ended up living for a year teaching English in Japan, like all of these subsequent opportunities came and I ended up really becoming a backpacker, like a solo backpacker and was broke as hell but was still finding a way in between these freelance gigs to kind of like take the time I had off and actually go and see the world.
0: That's amazing. How did Japan and Thailand, which one was first? And then I would be curious to hear your experience in both in terms of also where were you in Japan? Where were you in Thailand? And what was that experience like? Because those countries are very different from New York City. And they're very different from Paris. So I'd be really curious about how your experience was there.
1: My first time in Asia was moving there. I had never visited, didn't know Japanese at all. Damn sure didn't know Thai. But with Japan, it was funny because I I was working at, I think, True TV at the time. And this was when True TV was very new. And I was working at True TV at the time and I was, you know, my hours, my freelance hours were coming up again. And it was like, all right, what am I going to do? I hadn't shut up about Paris since I had been back. And, you know, I ended up running into a girl that I went to school with. She graduated a year after me, Joanna, and just ran into her in the city and she had just gotten back from spending a year teaching English in Japan. And she was like, Avita, look, if you want to actually go out in the world and see it, but also be able to make a living. She's like, I really recommend teaching English. And I think with your personality, like you'd be great at it. She was like, and I'm going to tell you like this, it's both the longest and the shortest year of your life. And I had no idea what she meant by that. She was like, and it's hard for me to explain it. So I'm just going to leave it at that. It's the shortest and the longest year of your life, both at the same time, but it's an experience that you will never, ever, ever forget. And so I needed a job, you know, just overall. So at the same time that I was getting freelancing gigs in New York, I also started, you know, applying for teaching gigs all around the the world and seeing where it was. And I ended up getting a call back fairly fast from this company that, you know, places teachers in Japan. Again, I had no interest in Japan. I had no background in Japan, none of it. And so I was going out on a limb and I started the interview process in like November of 2008. The first week of January 2009, I get the email saying that I was placed in Niigata, Japan, right? Had never heard of it. Obviously, everybody tries to go for like Tokyo or Kyoto or Osaka, someplace like some big city, you know, where they feel like they'll have some normalcy amenities and maybe a couple people that still speak English, um, I ended right. up in Niigata, Japan, and i had never heard of it. You know, it, And Niigata is right across from South Korea, actually, in one of the tallest buildings, Tokemese in downtown Niigata. You can actually see parts of South Korea from the top of the building. That's how close they are. And I remember just researching it. It's the biggest city on the West Coast. It's about a four-hour drive North, uh, Northwest of Tokyo. And it's a quick like hour and a half, two hours Shinkansen bullet train ride from Tokyo, which is how I got there the first time. And I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know shit. <laughs> so I ended up um, having about six to eight weeks really to get rid of my apartment, get a sublet in. I had a cat at the time. I had a boyfriend at the time. Like, I was like, I don't know what is happening. I had to just like level everything out. And I ended up moving to Niigata, Japan, and I was an elementary school English teacher for seven different schools on a year contract. And literally every day I was at a different school, four schools had me once every two weeks, and then I had three schools that had me every week. And it was just kind of this rotation that I had, and it was an amazing experience. And it was just but it was, it was the shortest and the longest year of my life, the way that Joanna said it. Like when you look at a year on a calendar, I remember literally putting my calendar up on my wall and blacking out the dates and feeling like I was missing opportunities back home. And then my heart was between like my boyfriend back home, even though we had decided to kind of like split a little bit. And then what was going on in Japan, it was just a lot of being torn between places. And the first couple of months were hard. I was dealing with jet lag. My body was reacting to Japan and, you know, even just things like the sun coming up at like four in the morning, you know, because I was a bartender on the weekends. I had like three jobs, four jobs. I had my normal, you know, uh, morning job as far as every day which was teaching in the school system, but then I also got college students and also taught at private schools in the evenings. And then I ended up getting a bartending gig on Fridays and Saturdays at a foreign bar, literally just to be able to like speak English. (laughs) Like you never know how much just talking English is just like, you got to be kidding me how much you're deprived of it In these situations, Uh, my friend Megan, Megan is like my best friend that I made when I was living out there. She's another teacher from the States based out of Florida. I remember every day we would be on the phone after work for like three, four hours. And we're just like, why the hell do we do this? Like, why are we talking so damn much? And we realized it's because like our brains were purging, you know, like you're around people all day that either don't know how to speak English or are very choppy at it. And so to be able to have like a fluid conversation with somebody, you automatically just end up on the phone with them every single day for hours and hours at a time. And so it's just the psychological, the emotional, the physical adjustments that came along with being out there for a year were very real, you know, very real. And it was not easy, you know, especially that being the first place that I was. And I wasn't in a Tokyo. There were not other foreigners that lived by me. I was in a very small town, Uchino, And in Uchino, I was literally the only Black person that was there, period, you know? And and that's an interesting position to be put into as well is like, I know for a fact that I am the first Black person that all of my students at all of these schools ever came in contact with in real life. Like, when can you ever say that, you know? And so for me, it's like, I was this representation and there were these cool moments where like I left, right after Barack Obama was inaugurated the first, his first term. I wasn't there. I was not living in the United States during the first year of his first term. And so I remember the sentence structure that I had for some of my students was like, you know, say it was like, do you like vegetables? And I would have flashcards with different types of vegetables on them. What I would do is I would run my kids ragged, especially the young ones. I would have them run across the room for like, yes or no. So the whole class, they're running back and forth. And I remember one day I was writing the sentence structure on the board. And when I got to the side of the room where I was writing yes for yes, I do like all of a sudden the kids start yelling from the back. Yes, we can. Yes, we can.
0: Wow. And
1: I was like, Whoa, Whoa. And it caught me so off guard and I started to cry and I had to turn around and like, look at the board, get it together suck it up. And I was like, they don't even understand. And that happened every single class, regardless of the school, regardless of the age. It happened every single class that I had to do that sentence structure with. They would scream out, yes, we can. The two, I said the two most famous Black people that <laughs> were while I was living in Japan were Barack Obama and Michael Jackson. And unfortunately, I was there when Michael Jackson passed. That was all a part of the same year. And so I was able to see on an international level the impact that he had. And, and it was very, very powerful, especially in Japan, because he, he had an affinity for Japanese culture. And it was just crazy. There were so many just cross-cultural pollination moments that meant so much to me, Um, especially as a Black woman. I remember I have very curly hair, very nice, and I wear my hair natural. And so, like, my kids used to, they used to call me things, like, when I would have it up in a bum, they would say I look like a pineapple, and they used to call me things like bomba head and all this other stuff. But I would stick pens in my hair. And I remember one day I was teaching them, and I pulled the pen out of my hair to, like, stress the point that I was making with my hands. And these kids were like, uh, What? And I remember just like freaking them out with it. And I was like, this is so funny because they won't be able to do this. Their hair is bone straight. And I turned around to write something on the board and then turned back around. And all I see is this entire class of Japanese students trying to hook pens into their hair and wondering why they're just like falling out and they can't get them to catch. And so it was just, it was the cutest thing, you know, like them being fascinated with the fact that I knew how to eat with chopsticks. I remember it was so funny. It was such a flex. You eat, you eat. There's not like a, it, I only had one school that had a cafeteria. Like it's rare that there's like a cafeteria, especially for the elementary school. When it comes to Japanese elementary schools, you eat in your classroom and your teachers normally eat in your classroom too. Unless they, you know, you elect to eat in the, the teacher's room, which I always didn't. I always wanted to be by my students if I could be. And so they would set up a desk. And the other thing is every single student had a job. So they would literally put on these smocks. They had these color coded hats. And depending on if it was white or if it was red, depended on like what your role was that day. And they served themselves food. So like there was like an assembly line and everybody gets the same thing. There's no variation, no menu. This is what's being served today. Everybody gets the same exact portion size. And then if there's anything left, you can go back up and get some more. But you are served and everybody has a role. And it's the cutest thing. They clean up after it. You'll see them make games out of like, They would soak up rags and then make these racing games going down the hallway. And that's how they would like mop the floors at the end of lunch before they went to recess. Every school had a garden that the students were in charge of taking care of. Every school had a pet. One of my schools had a peacock for a fucking pet. Like, it was like, (laughs) what? But it was so fascinating. And I think it, it was so beautiful because it showed the power of community. And the fact that we are all intertwined, it's not this individualism, you know, that we have so much that runs prevalent in the United States. And there was just a beauty to the things that I witnessed and was a part of and the things that I learned about their culture. Like there's still things today that I still incorporate in my life and in my home from the time that I spent in Japan. It's a very, very dear place to me. And so, you know, it just, it really shaped so much and it was, it was one of the most intense, but beautiful, and just stripping experiences I've ever had in my life. I say that like if you go back to Niigata, you'll see like in my neighborhood where like there must be like some like avita snakeskin that just like shed because I completely morphed into a different person doing that program, and and I'm so grateful for everything that it taught me and exposed me to, and. You know, I've had teachers that I worked with reach out to me be, through social media. I secretly hope one day that my students like remember and find me on social media to kind of talk and now they're of age so I could like hang out with them, you know? And I hope that they stayed in English, you know, and I hope that I made it fun for them and and they had a sense of freedom in my classes that meant a lot to me. And so I love the experience very dearly. It challenged me on every single level. And I almost left about three months into it. I almost called it quits and came back home, but I'm glad that I didn't. And, um, and so, yeah, I was an English teacher in he Japan from March, 2009 to March, 2010. It was literally my 24th to my 25th birthday. And I was definitely having a quarter life crisis um, <laughs> at that time as well. So it was rather fitting, but Yeah, that was that. Japan was the summation of so much for me, but Thailand was shortly thereafter. I ended up moving to Chiang Mai, Thailand in late August, early September of that same year, 2010. 2010 is one of the worst years of my life. And coming back from Japan and such an amazing experience, I ended up losing in an untimely motorcycle accident, one of my best friends, who I also dated in college and after college for a short period of time. And getting the call that, you know, Rudy had passed away in a motorcycle accident and just all the string of events that ended up happening afterwards, it was crazy because I literally remember in January of that year, I woke up one morning getting ready for work and he was like V hit me up when you get this message he had sent me a text message on my cell phone so I called him and he was telling me about how he had gotten fired from his job he was an accountant during the day but he moonlit as a DJ and his passion was always DJing and so we had actually stole equipment (laughs) From our college when we graduated and that was his first DJ set.
0: (laughs) There is a lot of uh, historical lineage to that, by the way. I mean, for folks that don't know, one of the most significant moments in the history of hip hop and the history of DJing was when they had the blackout in New York City in the late 70s. And Mm -hmm. all of the electricity went out in the Bronx. Yeah, And people just broke into the music stores, stole the DJ equipment. And yeah. all of a sudden there was just like this massive proliferation of hip hop and DJing culture. So there is a long and uh, glorious tradition of that. So I'm not mad at you. Amina.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I've, I was like, fuck it. We're about to graduate. I was like, all these loans if they take taking from me, you want to take this fucking equipment? We good. We're good. <laughs> and so, yeah. Like, You know, there was a three of us, Rudy, myself, and one of my good friends still to this day, Josh, like we used to call ourselves the triad and we were all inseparable. And We used to run student groups together, diversity groups and all that other stuff on college campus. So, you know, when he had messaged me and letting me know that he had gotten fired, I was like, good, now you can just focus on DJing and really go after what you want. And he told me on the phone, he was like, V, this is why I called you. He was like, I didn't tell anybody else. And we went to school with some of his relatives, like his relatives, to be honest with you, a lot of his relatives didn't know that he had been fired until his passing because he had hidden it from everybody. And I was like, so do what you need to do. I said, and by the way, you know, I bartend at a, you know, it's a, you know, it's not like a club, but I bartend at a spot here in Niigatsu, Japan. That would be really dope to put on your resume as you go forward as a DJ get your ass a passport and fly out here. You got a free place to stay and just like come work and do your DJ thing out here in Japan while I live out here because when else am I going to be out here? I knew that I wasn't going to extend my contract. So he told me that he was working on getting his passport renewed and I'm not sure if he was or wasn't. But, you know, unfortunately that, that June he ended up dying in a motorcycle accident. And I remember so many things from that moment in time but one of the biggest things was you know I spoke at his funeral and it was crazy the view of the church because they had set his dj equipment up in the back and I bet you the majority of the people in that room did not know the story of how that dj equipment got there (laughs) And and I'm having like flashbacks as I'm also talking um, about how in the last six months of his life, he went after his dreams in a way that the majority of the people that were sitting there in that church still don't have the balls to. And it was important to me that they understood that. He did not die an accountant. He was a DJ, and that is how he would have wanted to be remembered. And so I'm glad that everybody stayed true to that and honored that for him. And so for me, also seeing him in this state, his body, not to get morbid, but it was a permission slip for me. You know, this man was my biggest living advocate. Anything I needed, you got it. Don't worry about it. And so to see this, it was like, okay. You know exactly who your guardian angel is. You know his laugh. You know his smile. You know the way he smells. You know when he's being an asshole. Like you know this person. And you know that if this person had your back as much as he did while he was on this side, that you have a super solid guardian angel on the other side. So you have no excuses, girl. Like go live this life however the hell you want it. And I felt like his death was my permission slip to go even harder than what I was before. So I had been back just for a few months from Japan when all this went down, definitely still in mourning. And I had applied for a job to be a field producer on a YouTube channel that was kind of like the real world for travelers four strangers get picked you come up to a consensus on a place to move and you have 90 days to find a job and a place to live and then these field producers they follow you and document your life i had applied to be a field producer and when they saw my reel and all the stuff that i had done while living in japan and you know just videotaping my life i had traveled to india while i was in japan at that time as well they were like we actually don't want you to work for us we want you to be a cast member And so I was like, okay, let's see. I ended up being the only female cast on my season, including the field producers. So it was myself and five men (laughs) that ended up moving out to Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I also taught English there along with one of my castmates, JP. Uh, And we ended up living out in Chiang Mai, Thailand while getting our lives videotaped for a YouTube show. And they never released all of the footage. I think like the first like two or three episodes came out and were released on YouTube. And then they were done because we had a screening at one of the guy's houses. But I don't know if they just like didn't get the funding for the graphics. Something happened. And the majority of our season in Thailand did not get aired. And I ended up having to leave a month before we were supposed to. So we were supposed to be in Chiang Mai for three months. I left after two months because while backpacking on a visa run between Thailand and Cambodia, I got stung by a mosquito and ended up catching dengue fever. So for the last like two weeks that I was in Thailand, I was in and out of the hospital and was just like, look, You know, my family at that point in time was like, you know, we've been kind of riding with this backpacker shit. We don't really get it, but like live your life. But now you're sick and this is scary. How about you bring your ass back home? And that was the first time that my family had ever, I don't know, they were talking to me the way that I had heard other people's families talk to them. And I didn't really have that problem of, you know, what are you doing with your life? And are you going to get a job? And why do you feel like you have to be out here? And I was like, oh, this is that shit that they're talking about. Got it. Now I see. And so my family didn't really get it and didn't understand the necessity for it, especially on the back end of having dengue fever. So I came back to the Bronx, got better. And was in this really crazy psychological and emotional space. I was dealing with reverse culture shock for the first time, which is crazy. If you've ever gone through it, it's crazy. Yes, yes. Reverse culture shock is the most. It's like one of the most bizarre things that you could ever feel in your life. That was nuts. I was dealing with the pressure of my family at that point in time. I was dealing with like dengue fever. I was still grieving over the fact of the loss of one of my best friends. Like it was just like what the.
0: without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you, to learn more about it, you can just go to the slash consult. And now back to the episode.
1: Fuck, like what is happening here? And that was when I started No Madness. <laughs>
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. You're in that moment of your life. And what was the impetus for founding No Madness? And maybe just share a little bit at that time, because I know it's evolved a little bit since then. But at that moment, what was it that you were hoping to create, that you needed, that you were attempting to create? And what was No Madness when it initially started? And then how has that evolved?
1: I literally created what I needed, which was a community. I needed to surround myself in some capacity with other people that look like me, that I could identify with, that maybe like grew up the same way I did, that understood that this travel thing isn't a fad. It's not a phase. It's not something that you do for a little bit and then you get over, that it actually becomes an intrinsic part of your life if you're a traveler, right? And so for me, it was all about creating community, and I did not see the communities that I wanted to be a part of at that moment in time. Instagram wasn't around, like, No Madness is older than Instagram. And so you didn't see a lot of the pictures and the images. I mean, still to this day, the travel industry is grossly underrepresented when it comes to mass media and hosts of shows and things of that nature. You know, one of my biggest focus now is bridging my television and video and film production background with travel. My dream has always been to have my own travel show. And so that that dream has not gone anywhere. It's actually, you know, become fever pitch the older that I get. And so there's that component to it as well. But for me at that point in time, and this still holds true, is I was looking for community. You know, I needed to talk these things out with somebody else because my family and friend circle did not get it. And it wasn't about forcing them to get it. It was about letting them live where they live in their space and me live where I live in my space, but I needed community. And so I built it. And the first- Hundred people I handpicked and put into Tribe. And it just organically grew from that first 100.
0: At the time, how did you find those 100 people? Were those literally you? Did you literally know 100 other black world travelers that had had similar experiences to you? Or like, how did you find that initial core of people?
1: It was a mix. I mean, at that time, I had been a travel blogger, you would say. So I knew that I had certain followers and people on Facebook that were, you know, kind of into it that had been abroad. The only thing I was really, really worried about at that point in time is I just wanted it to be a community of people who had at least one passport stamp. That was it. That's still our only prerequisite now. Like you have to be a traveler of color or an ally. Like those are the two things that you have to be for Nomadness members. Like we have white Nomadness members. We're just primarily black. We're like the best analogy I've heard for us is that we're kind of like a travel HBCU. It's just like anybody can apply to an HBCU. But like if you are not black, you understand what you are applying into. And you've got to be right. like with that or else it's going to be very awkward for you.
0: Right. Like, that's amazing. I that's love
1: literally that. what no madness is. We're like a travel HBCU. So for me, it was about those people who had at least one passport stamp. And for me, that was never elitist. The reason why I needed that is because I just knew as a traveler, all it takes is one trip. One trip will change your life. And one trip will show you why it is so important to see the world. It's so important. And so for me, it's like, I don't want to have to maneuver or coax you into, I don't want to have to do the babysitting of trying to get you on your first trip. That's not why I'm here. We're above that now. I want to get the peer group together of folks who did it of their own accord and understand why travel is so transformative. I was like, I want to be the leader of those folks. So that was where the requirement of having at least one passport stamp came to be.
0: That's amazing. And now you have over 24,000 Nomadness Travel Tribe members. And can you talk a little bit about how Nomadness has grown and evolved and what it offers now to its members?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have the international and domestic group trips. I mean, we have events, we have our merchandise line. We have the, you know, in the early years, we had our YouTube uh, show with uh, Issa Rae, the No Madness Project, which is still up on hers now. She's still a big advocate, a mentor and a friend of mine. There are so many components to this, but we definitely matured. And it's not just in our, our numbers, but our experiences are really immersive. You know, we are not the all-inclusive sit-at-a-resort, And I'm going to stay between these gated walls group. Everybody has their own travel stylistic and I don't knock anybody for how they want to enjoy the world. But if that is how you enjoy the world, we are not the one for you. We are the people that are immersive. We are the ones that want to see, Okay, where does our black history and diasporic history intersect with the story of the location where we are? We look for the local vendors that come from the neighborhoods that can get us access to the townships and the parties and the local restaurants and the mom and pop shops that people aren't looking for in a guidebook. That's how we get down when we do our nomadness trips. And so for us, it was about always seeking out and also representing the underrepresented. And that has not changed at all with us. We've just gotten better about it and doubled down on our mission. And In the beginning, people, I feel like the industry thought we were a fab. And I just talked about this. And so Connie Nash Traveler gave me two pages of their issue that's out right now, their August and September issue to just talk about like Black Lives Matter and how it intersects with the travel industry. And I went off, like I went off and they printed it, (laughs) which was also surprising, but it was great. And it's a conversation that also needs to be had in so many levels, and it's been just so powerful to see people take heed and finally pay attention because we were ignored. You know, I think people thought we were too early, then it was just like, are there times where it's just like, oh, we're too black, like what's going on? They didn't realize, like I knew how much money we were bringing into the industry because I created a business out of it. I literally became an entrepreneur out of people in the travel industry not paying attention, literally. You weren't paying attention to our demographic. You didn't think that our dollar meant anything. You didn't think that we even had disposable, disposable income to be able to go out and have these excursions. And thank you because I became an entrepreneur and a community leader behind that shit, you know? And so for me, it's been an interesting maneuver and growth with not just the tribe and what we represent, but also with myself as being, I hate the word influencer. I don't really consider myself an influencer. I'm more of a community organizer and one of the mavens that are in this space. I come from it from, I don't give a fuck about my follower account on Instagram. That's not what I'm in this for. For me, it's more about, okay, what is, what are we providing for our community? Like what is the added value? How do we show up for our community in various ways are they into the stuff that we're doing, like Audacity Fest and things of that nature? Do they care? And are we keeping them involved? And are we having them be a part of the process? Those are the things that I, I concern myself with the most. So that's kind of what we were and what we are. I think at our guts, we're still the same. We've just matured and evolved and we pack a, a bigger punch now. And, and we're really changing the scope of the industry and people are finally starting to recognize it in this moment. Audacity really changed the game for us though. That I'm not even gonna lie. Like that idea was like, that was the game changer.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, first of all, your Condé Nast Traveler piece was fantastic. I read it. We're going to link it up in the show notes in this episode so that everybody else can read it as well. And I also attended your Audacity Fest Digi, which was awesome. A couple of weeks ago was fantastic. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that, though, in terms of Audacity Fest, what it was initially, and then how you pivoted post-COVID-19 to a virtual format, which has been incredibly successful.
1: Thank you. Um, so being a keynote speaker, like I speak very much on travel and diversity. I'm one of like the OGs in this space. And... It's something where it's like tourism conferences, you know, governor balls, all types of stuff. There's a ton of things that I've been a keynote or a panelist at. And so I see the room, you know, when you're on the stage, you really see the room. And the rooms are very white, you know, as is the industry overall. But I represent a very black and brown space. So it's interesting when these worlds collide. With that said, I was tired of knowing So many of the heavy hitters, so many of the dope folks that are out there doing it in this community, knowing who they are and the work that they do, and it being like one or two of us sprinkled in a crowd every time that I'm at one of these events. The representation was not there at all. So in the likeness of Creating No Madness, I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to create the event where it's all about us and we're the majority And then any allies that wanna show up are actually the minority in the room. I wanted something that was focused on black and brown travel influencers, community organizers, activists, mavens, our resources, our stories, what it's like traveling as a person of color. Like I was like, I wanna get into all of that stuff. And I wanna take the conversations that we have in the Nomadness Travel Tribe group and Facebook and bring that to life. And so that is really, that's where Audacity Fest came from. And so we started it in 2018 in Oakland. We had 2019 in Memphis. And because of COVID, we were supposed to literally in like a couple, like next weekend was supposed to be the weekend that we were having it in New York. We ended up doing a digital pivot, the first one being on May 30th of this year. And the second one, like you said, just happening about a week and a half ago, um, two weeks ago on August 1st. And so Audacity Digi was our digital iteration And I said, you know, I don't mind going digital, but I'm somebody where form has to also meet function. If it doesn't look like us, sound like us, feel like us, have the energy like what our normal in-person event was, I'm not doing it. And so it took us a while to find the platforms that we wanted, to figure out how to rig the platforms, to really customize the experience. And we've really been able to come up with something that nobody in the travel industry has been able to produce in the digital format in 2020. And we're really, really proud of the energy that goes into it. The people that we have, you know, we had a hundred people more register from Audacity Digi one to the, to the second we have had, you know, the first one had 24 different countries represented. The most recent one had 22 countries represented. We are just like, we're breaking barriers that in the digital realm that we can in regards to just like geographic location that We were still so new, so we hadn't done that yet in the physical festival. And so now they've been so successful and our feedback has been so great. We're actually going to be doing them every quarter. And so our next one, Audacity Digi 3, is actually going to be on Saturday, October 24th. And we have dates where we're going to keep doing it, even when we can do the in-person audacity digi we're still going to be having the audacity fest we're still going to have audacity digis throughout the course of the year because they're that much of a value add for our community
0: i love that i think that's a really really good idea because so many more people can attend digitally you know even if it's not COVID 19 time just from around the world you know they can attend so i've already got my ticket for the next one in october We're going to link up in the show notes so folks can get their tickets as well and join into that. One of the things that I was really impressed with and I want to ask you about, Evita, is if you can talk about intersectionality within the Black travel community and how Nomadness and Audacity have been able to create a space and provide a platform for different Black travel experiences.
1: Yeah. I mean, intersectionality is the fact that like, we're not a monolith. Like there are, you know, different age brackets within the black and brown travel community. We have LGBTQ as another subset. There are just a bunch of intersections, people with disabilities, a bunch of intersections that also make up the broader black and brown travel community. And so we just make sure that throughout our programming and our attendance that we hit off on all levels. Like that's something that's really important to us.
0: That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit, too, just in terms of your trips that Nomadness has organized about the significance of Black travel spaces and the difference between, for example, experiencing a part of the world solo or with a group that's primarily non-Black people versus experiencing a part of the world with an all-Black travel group?
1: It's about being around like-minded people. I mean, that's really what it is. There's just certain things that we don't have to say. There are certain things that we don't have to look out for or, you know, be hyper cognizant of. There's certain things that I, as an organizer, look for when I'm booking these places to make sure that my community would feel comfortable here. So I think that when you're among like-minded travelers and possibly travelers that are of the same ethnicity for us, you know, there's just, it's a different vibe and there's more of a family vibe from the beginning because we get it. You know, there's a lot of unsaid things that come along with being Black (laughs) and things that we just intuitively know and looks that we just have and ways that we connect even with strangers. That's very universal for us. So I think it's a lot of like those intangibles knowing that those things are already set up so that you're going to have the best experience and the safest experience for a group of black people. I think that makes the way we go out a little bit different.
0: Awesome. I want to also ask you about your TED residency experience and your TED talk, which was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, really, like you brought the ruckus in this TED Talk. And I want everybody that's listening to watch your TED Talk. So we are going to link that up in the show notes. And I it's only six or seven minutes long. So I really want to encourage everybody to go and watch the TED Talk. But I would love to hear your experience in the TED residency program and leading up to the creation of the TED Talk and tell folks a little bit about what you did with that TED Talk.
1: The TED Residency Program is something that they don't have right now anymore. And they started it years ago. I've known and had tribe members that were in every single iteration. I think they got up to like the sixth or seventh residency. I was a part of residency number three. And essentially what you have to do is you have to apply for the program by doing a project for four months because the residency program is you work out of the headquarters of TED in Manhattan for four months. And then at the end of the four months, you give a TED talk. And so they help you prepare for it through a number of workshops, writing sessions, going through editing. You know, you guys are helping each other memorize it. They take kind of like the Michael Jordan of everybody in various industries and curate just a powerhouse group of people that are really, really literally trying to change the world. And so I did not get into the residency. I got denied the first time I applied, but I wanted it so bad and had so many people that were a part of it who were fierce advocates of the work I did that I reshaped my project and applied again. And the second time I applied, I got in. And it was just a very powerful experience, you know, to be around day to day, people who are at the top of their game. I still have relationships with these people to this day. Some of them are dear friends and will be for the rest of my life. A number of them have spoken at Audacity Fests. are members of Nomadness. I've also shown up for them and their respective spaces as well. It's just, it's one of the most important and beautiful networks that I can say that I'm a part of. And, and I'm really appreciative of the people because that's really what makes the residency is the people. The talk was like one of my checklists on my vision board. I had wanted to give a TED Talk for a decade, and it was something that I was very clear that I wanted to do. It is one of the most terrifying experiences in my life. (laughs) Even as somebody who is very vocal and does a lot of public speaking, there is just something very unique about that red dot. And it is just kind of traumatizing, actually. <laughs> and only people who have done TED talks say that. And then it's funny because you'll you'll get people that want to book you for speaking engagements, and they'll be like, "Yeah, like we want you to do like a TED talk style." And I'm like, they think that that's the best thing to say because you've given one, and they don't realize that anybody who's given a TED talk, if you hear that, you're gonna like send them into like PTSD. So it's like, (laughs) it's just like, don't ever say that to somebody who's given a TED Talk, like come up with something else, like describe it another way. But just an amazing experience and something that I would do it all over again if I had to, you know, I gave the first TED Talk on the Black travel movement across the board. And so that was a real honor for me as well, being able to be the representative of this work And of this movement, but also of the Negro Motorist Green Book by Victor Hugo Green and, you know, really connecting the dots historically for so many people of all ethnicities who just did not know how far this movement reaches back to. And so for me, it was it was very important and I was very honored to be put in the situation on that stage with that platform to be able to tell that story.
0: Can you go a little bit deeper into that in terms of the history of Black travel safety and explain what the Green Book was for folks that don't know, and then how Nomadness fits into that historical lineage?
1: The Negro Motorist Green Book was created by Victor Hugo Green, who was a mailman in New York during Jim Crow when it was not safe for Black people to travel around the United States there were things called sundown towns where they were distinct towns where black people had to get out by sundown or they could be killed and meet with force and violence by both locals and the police. And so the Negro motorist green book became this kind of like overground railroad map that was updated annually that charted out all the safe spaces for black people to be able to travel within the United States so it was it was like a phone book. Essentially, it was broken down by state and then by city and it was a list of hotels and lodging spaces, different saloons that you could go to, different car repair shops that you could go to, people's houses that would accept you if you were a black traveler. It was literally your book to just know where it was cool and where it was not regardless of where you were in the country. And so it was a very powerful tool that literally Black road trippers, as they you know, were becoming more affluent and able to travel around during Jim Crow and were driving around the country, it became their like Bible. They had to keep it close because that was your navigation tool. And so that's what the Negro Motorist Green Book was. And it was around for a long time. And there are many iterations. I myself own repurposed copies of quite a few of them. I was lucky enough in working with uh, a fellow influencer of mine, Phil Walkie and uh, Amtrak. We ended up doing a black history month presentation this past February in which we were able to go to the Schomburg center and actually see all of the Negro motorist green books, like the original ones and touch them and hold them and, you know, see, because to this day, the Schomburg center has the largest collection of the original copies in the world. And so I have a very direct connection to the green book and also shouts out to my head of social media, my creative lead on my social media team, Martinique Lewis, who's amazing. She is a travel and diversity consultant, one of the founding members of the new Black Travel Alliance, BTA, that's also holding the industry to account. But she just this past week announced her new ABC green book and she has created a new physical like 2020 version of the Negro Motorist Green Book on an international scale. And this focus is on Black-owned businesses. And so it's really cool to see her grow and be able to get it. And the book is available right now. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. What the work that she's doing is so important. And, you know, I love having her on the home team. That's my girl. And just being able to come together and really do the work and represent this legacy and keep it going for generations to come. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about what it means and how we're evolving it and kind of making it our own now in this moment. It's very, very important that we keep going with this work.
0: That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the underrepresentation? You sort of alluded to it earlier, the underrepresentation or misrepresentations of travelers of color in the travel industry and amongst travel brands and how Nomadness has been challenging that. And you personally have been challenging that and what the results and impact have been so far. And if you want to bring it up to immediate present day, I'm particularly curious as well over the you know, the last few months of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that have been happening all over the world, what type of impact you're seeing that have on the travel industry as well?
1: Okay, so the representation just really hasn't been there. You know, that's kind of just what it is. And so for us, it's just like, I'm very big on like, I'm not going to keep hitting my head against a door, the same door. Like, I'm just going to create my own. I very much believe it's important that you create your own table while also getting a seat at others. So being on the board of Connie Nast, Travelers, Women Who Travel initiative is a way of me inserting myself and being positioned at a powerful table while also creating the audacity fest and the you no know, travel tribes, you know, that we have ownership of, even the data work that we're getting into for this year as well. Like us owning our own data is very, very important to us. And so, those are moves that are being made because the representation literally just hasn't been there, you know? And even in Black countries, like, it's just, it's crazy. Some of the marketing that you see for Africa is just, like, mind-blowing, you know? And so that's been the problem. It hasn't been there. I mean, how many travel, Black travel hosts have you seen on air ever? You know, the only one that I know of is a good friend of mine, Kelly Edwards, who had the show Mysterious Islands on Travel Network. That was it. And so it's like, There's these brief, brief blips in the matrix where people pop up, but it's not something that is ongoing and that is representative of us. And the representation matters, especially for the generations coming up like they want to see that they are capable of being in these spaces, you know, on these shows, running their own businesses, creating their own communities, you know, if they want to be an influencer, being an influencer, like all of that stuff is very pertinent when it comes to representation, but also there's a financial gap that has happened too. This is one of the things I love about everything blowing up with like the influencer pay gap on Instagram and people calling out the industry, myself included and black travel alliances, we found out that the pay gap between like black influencer influencers of color period versus our white counterparts is like bizarre. The sponsorship and marketing dollars, huge gap between our events and a lot of times we're bringing in more value, more people and a better experience. You know, but we have to sign over our next of kin in order to get any type of like real check cut you know, to support these events. It's really, really insane. And so the calling out has been happening within the last couple months since the Black Lives Matter initiative has gone. And, you know, we're riding that wave. We definitely see the conversations are getting more in depth. They're more raw. We had an allies panel, you know, at Audacity Digi 2 that got very vulnerable, as it should have, in a number of parts. And, you know, this is us doing the work, this is what the work looks like. And I don't care how uncomfortable it gets. It has to happen.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you have any thoughts or tips for white travelers, nomads, that kind of thing, not necessarily folks that are in the travel industry working with a travel-related business that can impact in that sense, but even just folks that are in that sort of digital nomad space, that long-term world travel space, how can white folks be better allies?
1: Well, don't be racist. This is the thing, right? White people have access to intimate spaces that Black people don't, right? Right. It's about checking your racist uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, it's about having those intimate conversations with your siblings when they say something that is like incorrect and offensive. It's about those intimate spaces because this is the thing, like racism isn't really bred in society. This is like some homegrown shit, right? And so it's about infiltrating and stopping and challenging those spaces in their tracks when they happen. I don't have access to people's home life and whatever's being said behind closed doors. Even the major Black activists don't have that access. There's something that's happening before it even gets into mainstream that white people have to take ownership over because racism isn't really Black people's problem. We're, and it sucks because we get all the side effects of it. You know, but it's not our problem in that it's also not up to us to fix it. You guys have got to fix this. And until that happens internally and within your white intimate spaces, it's never going to bleed out into mainstream America where we can actually see it and it can change. It's just not. And so I think. Travel, whether you're in travel or not, I don't even care If you have those people in your life that you know are problematic, it's time to start stepping up to these people. It's time to start calling them out. It's time to start infiltrating these spaces and speaking up and being an ally, not in front of me, but in front of them, because that's where the real change happens.
0: I agree 100%, that's awesome. Let me ask you an entrepreneurship question. You've done a lot of really impressive stuff on the business side of Nomadness. And I want to just ask if you can speak a little bit about that. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show in terms of how you were able to build the business that you built, the multiple streams of income that you have built, the way you were able to create streams of income that were going to be resilient even through unexpected things like COVID-19. You were able to pivot. You were able to be innovative. You were able to have additional streams of income that weren't necessarily as impacted by it as some of the travel industry was destroyed by it. Your company was not. Can you talk a little bit just from the business side about how you've built what you've built and how you've been able to maintain it despite all of these crazy curveballs that we business owners have have been thrown lately?
1: I mean, I'm an artist first, which means I'm a hustler, right? So artists know how to be broke, (laughs) unfortunately. You know, creatives know how to be broke. We know how to flip something from nothing. We know how to make a dollar. We know how to look at something that looks really generic and make it not so generic. We know how to market things in different ways. We know how to diversify income because that is literally how we survived, And so I think for me, more so than anything, it's my creativity and the fact that I haven't lost a sense of play and of trying things and not being scared of them working out or not. I approach things like a project, but I'm going to be honest with you. Some of this shit I can't teach because it really is. It really does intrinsically come from a space of creativity. I think when people are hyper analytical, there's a space for that. But you've also got to make space for the magic that can come up. You've got to make space for the fact that some things aren't linear. They're not straight laced. You are not going to find the way I built No Madness in anybody's business book. I have broken hella rules, and including the first one, which is that business is not supposed to be personal. My business is extremely personal to me. I work with people. I care about these people. They care about me. It's extremely personal to me. And so all of the things, there's no blueprint that I could ever usher out to anybody. It's really about diversifying and also looking at opportunities from a creative space and in a creative lens to be able to see different ways of going about it because business as usual is stupid. The thing with me is I get bored easily also being a creative. So I'm not scared of trying something new. I never have been. So this is really just about implementation and Having proper teams, and that's the other thing, teams are a really, really big thing. I've had to let go of entire teams in a full sweep in us rebranding years ago and kind of just like maturing and going to the next level. So being honest about what your team is capable of, but I think for us, it's really about innovation. It really is innovation. And that is the, when I tap into the creative part of my brain, not the business side at all, actually.
0: That's awesome. I love that. Let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the final section into the lightning round. Uh, I want to ask you about your lifestyle design. Let's just say (laughs) pre-COVID. If there were no global pandemics restricting us. What have you come up with in terms of your ideal lifestyle design, travel cadence? How much do you travel for how long? How frequently do you maintain a permanent home base? All that kind of stuff. What is your ideal lifestyle design look like?
1: My ideal is homes around the world. There's particularly four places that I'm looking at the possibility of having homes and being able to use them as disposable income, passive income when I'm myself or my family is not there. And then being able to live there as I want with the freedom of, you know, just kind of traveling around the world. But home bases are very important to me because I travel so much. I need a home. That's what grounds me.
0: What are those four places?
1: One would be in the United States. I'm not sure exactly where, if it's the place I live now or somewhere else. Um, South Africa, Spain and Thailand.
0: Amazing. I love that. All right. Avita. at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yeah. Let's do it. The Lightning Round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out?
1: The Celestine Prophecy. Awesome.
0: What is one travel hack that you've developed over the years that you'd
1: recommend to people? Always have oregano oil on you, especially if you're traveling to a place where the food is questionable.
0: I love that. Who is one person currently alive today? that you've never met that you would most love to have a one-on-one extended dinner with? Beyonce. Nice. What are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been that you'd most recommend people check out?
1: South Africa, India, and Berlin.
0: Nice. I know you've been to India a number of times. That's one of my favorite places as well. I think it has the best food on the planet of earth, in my opinion. I know you've been there a number of more times than I have been. Um, do you want to share a little bit about what you love so much about India, and what it means to you? Because I know it's really important to you.
1: It's just a mystical place. It's it's a place that I never leave there complaining about the same things that I went there complaining about. It's very humbling. I think that people need to travel to a place that humbles them at least every like two years and India is that place for me. And I just have relationships that have withstood, you know, in the last decade, I've been there eight times. I go there almost annually. So for me, it's just, and going there for Holy Festival of Colors is just one of the most beautiful and fascinating and enchanting times and joyous festivals that I've ever experienced in my life. And so I really, really feel like, I don't know, it just touches me on quite a few levels, but I love the, the mysticism the humility that I get from India and the experiences that I have there.
0: So awesome. All right, what are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places that you've never been, highest on your list, you most wanna see top three.
1: Egypt, which I was supposed to be in, in April. (laughs) Um, Egypt, Morocco, and hmm, what would my third one be? And I would say Cuba.
0: Nice. I lived in Egypt for about a year and I've been to Morocco a couple of times as well. So definitely hit me up when you're ready to plan those trips post-COVID. Happy to give you some tips on those. All right, Evita, final question of the lightning round and the most important question of the lightning round, because I understand that you've never revealed this before in public. I'm going to ask you to name your top five hip hop MCs of all time you ready?
1: yeah and this may change I don't know but right now I'm really I was like I'm like yeah I think so um, my top five I'm I'm really comfortable and confident saying uh, biggie, Black thought, most deaf, Andre 3000 and actually Eminem he's an insane lyricist um, so those would be my top five.
0: Nice a good picks I love that All right. Evita, I want you to let folks know how they can join the Nomadness Travel Tribe, how they can get tickets to the next Audacity Digi Festival, how they can follow you on social media with all the awesome stuff that you are up to and anything else that you would like folks to know or how you would like people to come into your world.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So you can literally, um, on Facebook, you can just type in, in the search, no madness travel tribe and both our fan page as well as our actual group will pop up. So you can just like ask to join just three quick questions before we get people in an entry. So you can find us on the Facebook group. Also on social, all of our handles are at no madness tribe. Um, and for audacity, all of our handles on social media are at audacity fest And our website is audacityfest.com and just click on the Digi tab and you'll be able to get tickets for the next Audacity Digi. Also on our social media, it links to all of our Audacity Digi tickets as well. Um, Next one being Saturday, October 24th. So we're excited.
0: Amazing. We are going to link every single one of those things up in the show notes folks. So you can just go to one place at the maverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find all the social media handles, the link, direct link to get your tickets to join me in attending the next audacity Digi fest and all of that other good stuff. We're going to link up to Avita's Ted talk. We're going to link up to her Condé Nast traveler article and all of that stuff. One place, the dot show.com. Just go to the show notes for this episode. Avida, this was amazing. You are amazing. You are doing amazing things. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was awesome.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com.